We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church this morning. It's good to see you all here. If you have your Bible, please turn to Ezekiel 34. We're going to read there first and then just swap the order of events in the bulletin there with the recognition. Uh, Ezekiel and 34. We'll continue our reading through the Old Testament together, and we're here with Ezekiel 34. Tonight we'll be in Second Chronicles, working through that book together. It says in the 34th chapter of the prophet Ezekiel's book, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them. Now notice the word shepherd there is not referring to a literal shepherd. Okay, These are leaders, teachers, priests, Levites in the nation. And so we might think of them in an analog to our national and religious leaders today in the world. Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Notice that. Feeding themselves versus feeding the flocks. That's a pretty clear reference, isn't it? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. No, This is no real shepherd, no true shepherd. And they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. What, what do sheep do when there is a cruel and forcible shepherd over them. They don't like that, do they? They scatter away and find somewhere else to be. Talking about people, of course, here with sheep. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and no one was seeking or searching for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey and my flock became food For every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd, nor did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand. This is a statement of deep judgment. I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep, and the shepherds shall feed themselves no more. For I will deliver my flock from their mouths, that they may no longer be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. Are you hearing the echoes of John chapter 10? 
I am the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice and they follow me. Verse 12, as a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, in the valleys and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture, and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down in a good fold and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to, what? Lie down. Green pastures. Verse 16, I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away and bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick, but I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. And as for you, O my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I shall judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and goats. Is it too little for you to have eaten up the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the residue of your pasture and to have drunk of the clear waters that you must foul the residue with your feet. It's like it's not good enough for them to have the cream of the crop. They had to mess up the leftovers for their people. Again, under this metaphor of the sheep and the shepherd, uh, shepherds of Israel. And as for my flock, verse 19 says, they eat what you have trampled with your feet and they drink what you have fouled with your feet. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, behold, I myself will judge between the fat and the lean sheep because you have pushed with side and shoulder, butted all the weak ones with your horns and scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will save my flock and they shall no longer be a prey and I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will establish one shepherd over them and he shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken." Notice that this is written long after David is dead. We understand that God is speaking of David literally, but a resurrected David. I will make a covenant of peace with them and cause wild beasts to cease from the land, and they will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. This is a millennial kingdom reference now. He's looking far forward into the future when the restoration of the nation is completed. Verse 26, I will make them in the places all around my hill a blessing, and I will cause showers to come down in their season, and there shall be showers of blessing. Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield her increase. They shall be safe in their land, and they shall know that I am the Lord, when I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. And they shall no longer be a prey for the nations, nor shall beasts of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely and no one shall make them afraid. I will raise up for them a garden of renown and they shall no longer be consumed with hunger in the land nor bear the shame of the Gentiles anymore, that is of the non-Jewish nations. Thus they shall know that I, the Lord their God, am with them and they, the house of Israel, are my people, says the Lord God. You are my flock, the flock of my pasture, you are men, and I am your God, says the Lord God. Indeed, we are the sheep of his pasture. 
aren't we? Psalm 100 tells us. Indeed. I invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to Philippians, where our message will be taken from in this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, a church that he had founded by God's grace a number of years earlier, perhaps 10 years or so before this letter was written. And we're in chapter 4 as we continue our series uh, straight through the verses here in Philippians 4, verse 4. So let me read, uh, actually, I'll read um, verses 4 through 9, and then we'll comment on the first segment of that text. It says in Philippians chapter 4, verse number 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, Whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. One of the most common sections of the Bible that I use in ministry to others particularly in maybe short exchanges or uh, you know, brief uh, ministries with folks, is this portion of Scripture. I use it in my own life also, frankly. The pervasive problem that brings us to this verse or these verses in Scripture is the anxiety and general lack of physical and spiritual calm that we often experience. Stress arises from our inner response to perceived or real stressors. We may have inner struggles with what we are doing or who we are. Our identity is commonly spoken of today. We may have grief over things that have happened in the past. We may have problems in our school or job or relationships. We may have unsettled feelings in our relationship to our God We may expose ourselves to news and social media to such an extent that our minds are overrun with volumes of bad information and we can't see the good in the world because of it. We can't cope with it. Some people testify to that, don't they? They say, I have to turn it off. Maybe you haven't gotten to that point yet, but I would encourage you to get to that point. You can be a lot more productive and a lot less stressed if you do that. But the response uh, to, to stress is not only um, spiritual or uh, immaterial, if I might say. Not immaterial being, meaning not relevant, but in terms of not bodily or not physical. Stress has physical effects as well because, as Scripture teaches, we are unitary beings made up of both material and immaterial components, which are are tightly joined together, only separated in what event? In death. It takes a lot to separate the two, uh, the material and the immaterial part. We are unitary beings and really not whole 
unless we have both body and uh, spirit together, and that's what we call a living soul, a living nefesh in Hebrew, a living soul. Stress not only stresses our minds, it can also damage our hearts, upset our GI tract, cause tension in our bodies that manifest as headaches and other pains. Stress can even be a killer. A popular productivity book that I read recently is called Getting Things Done by David Allen. Has anybody read that book, Getting Things Done by David Allen? Uh, one one uh, reader, at least, if not aficionado. It expresses the issue that I'm talking about in the subtitle, The Art of Stress-Free Productivity. It advocates an approach to bring your work and life in Uh, to such a place where you can focus on whatever you're presently doing with undivided attention, with calm confidence, and with that kind of unfrazzled state of mind that lets you uh, do your work with uh, a full vigor and energy. The implicit idea is, of course, that stress is a major problem, especially for busy people. He's, He's really writing to executives and those that have a busy life, not those people that are sitting around, you know, making one thumb go after the other one like this, okay? Um, but stress is a major problem for, for people and his experience. His, his thesis, though, is designed to deal with the productivity area of your life. Work, school, projects, other stuff like that. But what about your inner thoughts and difficulties in relational matters, or things that cannot be managed simply with a planner or a to-do list. What about those things? This problem is not new at all. It's as old as humanity is, yet it's also different in our current context. We creatively invent new ways to be stressed about things and anxious. Our ancestors may have been anxious whether their food supply would last till the end of winter, or even if they had food for the day. In prosperous conditions such as we have found ourselves in, we sometimes worry about far less important matters. We have more time to worry because we are idle. Some of us just are not as busy as in previous generations. In fact, idleness may be the cause in some cases of anxiety and lack of sleep because we're not using energy in our bodies productively with, say, physical labor or even exercise or some productive activity of the mind but instead we're burning that energy on mental anxiety. Or our great possessions and busyness uh, may intrude in our restfulness as well. Ecclesiastes 5.12 says, The laboring man's sleep is sweet, but the abundance of the rich man will not permit him to sleep. It's a strange conundrum, isn't it? That a simple lifestyle can give you a good night's sleep, but having all kinds of business going on and assets and stock market and all of this can just kind of weigh on you and you lose sleep over that. We, as Psalm 127 says, we eat the bread of sorrows and we lose sleep over those anxieties. That idea of eating the bread of sorrows is part of that uh, rising up early, staying up late and eating the bread of sorrows. What that's talking about basically in our modern terms is the rat race. We're on the rat race. We're getting up early. We're going to bed late. We can't get a good night's sleep. We get up in the morning, and what do we do? We repeat the whole thing over again. The Christian faith offers a solution to anxiety and stress, and the only solution that works in the long term 
and is soundly founded on first and true principles. It cannot be found, this, this, this solution to, to mental strength, or mental rather uh, stress, cannot be founded upon mental strength or self-improvement or other such things because those are based on an inherently weak object, ourselves. You're looking into yourself. All you're going to be able to do is that which you're capable of doing, and that's not, frankly, that much in the big scheme of things. The this foundation for this approach must be based elsewhere, and our conviction is that it's based in God and our relationship to Him. Unless our lives are really centered around the Lord, we will not know true satisfaction or the solution to our anxieties. Now, in this text that we've looked at, we're going to talk about this in two parts, one today and one next week, God willing. The structure of the passage is very interesting. I'd like you to look at the uh, outline. I don't know if it's in your notes on page three or page two, probably maybe three, where I have that box there. Maybe it's the bottom of page two and onto page three. And what I've done is I've I've shrunk the text, and I'm not meaning to uh, subtract from God's word here. What I'm trying to do is get you to see the forest instead of being hung up on all the individual trees. And what we have here in verses four to nine are two paragraphs. And the interesting thing that I find here is the bold text at the end of both of those paragraphs. Over the years, my appreciation for this package of verses has increased. My conviction is that we have to look at them as a whole, not merely as standalone individual verses in a sequence. For example, we cannot legitimately lift verses 6 and 7 out of their context and, and say that, well, there's our solution to stress and anxiety. It tells us just to pray with thanksgiving, and that's it. That will do it. It gives you a one-dimensional solution to your problem of inner peace, but it's not sufficient. Let me show you why. If you look at the structural diagram, you see the verbs there, rejoice, be gentle, do not be anxious, instead pray with thanksgiving to God. And what's the result of those things? The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. Go on to verse 8. Think on things that are good and godly. In fact, I'll encourage you next week, and I will today also, memorize that verse 8. Whatever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's any praise, think on these things. Now, I haven't given it to you exactly in word order, word, word for word in New King James, because I learned it years ago, but... Those eight things that I just listed in verse 8 are where our minds are to be focused. If you're, if you're off daydreaming and you, you catch yourself and you say, wait a minute, now let me think Philippians 4.8. <laughs> are the things that I'm thinking about in line with that? Well, you know what to do. But he says, think on things good and godly. Follow the exemplary teaching and conduct of the apostle of Jesus, that is Paul, whatever you've seen and heard and, and learned from me, do. And what does it say at the end of that uh, paragraph? And the God of peace will be with you. Do you see a common thread here? Both of these end in peace that flows from the Christian activities presented in, the, in each part of the paragraph, the first part of those paragraphs. Taking only one of these items as a preferred prescription for peace is not going to cut it because anxiety is a multifaceted problem and requires a multifaceted solution. 
the one medication of prayer is not going to entirely solve the gut-eating, heart-damaging power of anxiety. You cannot expect to win the battle against stress in your mind if while you're praying, you know, you say, Pastor, I've been praying and I'm trying to give this over to the Lord. At the same time, if you're praying but you're not living as a contented Christian, you're not following the biblical example of good conduct and not filling your mind with good things. If you pray but are meditating on trashy things, not living godly, are harsh against other people instead of gentle, are never thankful or rejoicing in your attitude, then prayer alone is not going to work. Did I say that? Prayer is not going to work. We like to say prayer works. But you know, the prayer of somebody who's living in sin is not going to be heard. So you can pray until you're blue in the face. But if you're living in sin, and this is why this is such a common text for me to go to and take people and say, hey, you're anxious? What are you anxious about? Maybe there are underlying reasons. If you have no peace, there is a reason for that. Stop and think about what the reason is. For instance, people often ask about their lack of assurance. I'm not sure that I'm bound for heaven. I don't feel like I'm really a believer in God. Something is amiss in your relationship with the Lord now. You're worried about going to heaven, but what about your relationship with him now? The reason you have that problem is because you have this problem in your life. There's something amiss. You are not believing confidently in God's promises. You have some hidden sin. You're struggling against some addictive, sinful behavior. Uh, you've been wrongly taught about what the Bible says, and you're not you know, reaching that escape velocity that I've talked about from that. You, know, you were taught when you were a child, you've got to do this in order to please God. You've got to do these works in order to make him happy, or you've got to earn your own merit before God. Or, or, and you have these ideas in your mind, and you're thinking self-performance. If I perform, then I'm going to achieve God's favor. No, you're not. The scripture says, by the works of the law, no flesh is justified in his sight, because by the law is the knowledge of sin. So if you've been taught wrongly, of course you could have these kinds of anxieties. You believe errant information, or perhaps you're just plain old living in sin. I'm not talking about necessarily shacking up with somebody. You might be doing that. If you are, you're living in sin, but it could be a lack of contentment. It could be indulging your lust. It could be a lack of self-control and how you eat or how you think or how you treat other people. Um, it could be that you don't even, maybe, you, you, maybe you're anxious because you say, what's going to happen to me when I die? You're anxious because you don't know the information necessary to be born again. Well, that, that would make me anxious. Well, knowing what I know now, it would certainly make me anxious if I did not know that what happens to my sins when I die? What, what do I do with them? Well, the gospel of Christ, of course, is the foundation for that and for everything else in the letter that we're reading. Without entering into a relationship with God through faith in Christ, you may, without that, you know, you may for a while feel happy and stress-free and all of that, but these feelings will be fleeting with the change of circumstances in your life. The Christian has a permanent foundation for these thought patterns because he has a hope beyond what is offered in this temporal 
existence. If you have the relationship with God through Christ, you believe that Christ died for your sins and rose again from the grave, that you have the hope that is the certain future expectation of resurrection like we talked about, what, two weeks ago now. If you have those as foundational elements in your life, then you have tools by which you can build a life of contentment, a life of rejoicing, a life that is not full of anxiety. And so the Apostle Paul gives us a number of elements to the prescription, if you will, not just prayer, but a number of others. And the first one of those is in Roman numeral one, as I've listed them in the notes, rejoicing in verse number four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. The command is to be glad, simply put, to be glad in the Lord. And this theme permeates the letter to the Philippians. In fact, Paul told them in chapter three, verse one, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And he mentions this a handful of times, about a half a dozen times, this word in the letter. Uh, And I'll let you go back and look at the previous notes to see those. They're all available for you on the website. So why is he saying it again? Why is he saying to rejoice again? You say, well, I've already read that. I don't need to read it again. Well, God knows something about the psychology of human existence. (laughs) Life in this world is punctuated by bad people and bad situations, uh, depressive conditions, circumstances or health comes along that can cause us to be in a melancholy mood. As soon as joy is experienced, it's washed away by the passage of time or some other circumstance that comes, makes that joy disappear entirely. And so we need constant reminders, constant reminders. You know, you're up and down and up and down, not like the bipolar up and down, but you kind of feel that way, you know? The mood swings, the different things in life. Some of us are a little more, you know, like this, and others are a little more like this. (laughs) But Christians are called to be glad, thankful instead of complaining, happy instead of dour, satisfied instead of discontent, because we have good reason to be glad, don't we? I mean, we have something whereof to be glad, do we not? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Yes, we, we have, God has saved those who are his. God has loved us in Christ. He's given us good hope through grace. He's forgiven us. He's adopted us Christians as his own children. Why would we be sour in light of that? Notice that it says the sphere of rejoicing is given next. Rejoice in the Lord. Always. God is not telling us to magically wish our problems away, not pretending that they do not exist, not to rejoice in our shifting or bad circumstances. Rejoicing in the Lord is possible because he is not shifting and changing. He's always good. He is always gracious. He's always kind. He's always on his throne. His mercy endures forever. He is constant, unchanging, immutable in all of that goodness. And so we can be rejoicing in him, and not only once in a while rejoicing in the Lord, but it says rejoice in the Lord always. The timing of the rejoicing is at all times. Yes, even in difficult times, in difficult circumstances. Our rejoicing in the Lord is possible because the Lord is always the same. Remember this in the frequent times that you are tempted to express an attitude other than rejoicing in the Lord. 
It is God's immutable greatness and goodness that is the foundation of our constant rejoicing. Now, he's already said it in chapter 3, and he says it again here at the beginning of verse 4. And then he says, again, I will say rejoice. Why does he do that? This is where I need somebody to jump in with an objection. I say to you, rejoice. And somebody says, but I have an objection, Pastor. My circumstances are such that I can't rejoice. Oh, are they? I'm hunting for a footnote here. You know, except if your circumstances are such and such, I'm not seeing it there. Okay? So Paul interrupts the person who says, I cannot rejoice in my present circumstance. Paul says, I say to you again, rejoice. Don't argue. In a sense, is what's going on here. He repeats it again because he knows that we need to hear it. You ever had a time when you've been kind of, you know, and somebody comes along and gives you that kick in the pants, not necessarily literally that you need, and says, hey, brother or sister, come on. And you say, you know what, I needed that reminder. Thank you very much for that reminder. I needed that. I'll return the favor when you need it sometime. (laughs) We need to be reminded to rejoice because our flesh is so prone to complain. Secondly, the second prescription for the anxiety ridden is to cultivate a gentle spirit. Verse number five, let your gentleness be made known to all men. The Lord is at hand. This is a command again, but it's given in the context of a book that teaches us humility. Uh, How do I know that? Well, in chapter two, Paul said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, the humblest mind set that somebody could have. He came from glory to humiliation, from life in bliss to the death of a cross in order to secure your salvation from sin. Let that mind be in you. So the same author that teaches that cannot be conveying a show-off idea here. You know, look how, look how nice of a person I am. He's not telling us to do that. Without saying a word, you should be known as a gentle person. Hopefully this is evident in your life after you've become a follower of Christ. That transformation can sometimes be almost like instantaneously tremendous. But I hope at least that you've made good progress on that path yourself. It will be seen by outsiders, and they will see also the overflow of your rejoicing. This induced me to remember a variation of something that I had read some couple weeks ago that I put on uh, social media just a few days ago. Some of you saw it, where I asked the question, do your social media posts reflect the kind and gentle nature of a Christian? I didn't say, or do they, you know, you fill in the blank. Sometimes our posts are expressions behind the keyboard and monitor and the anonymity of that are not expressive of a true Christian nature. They may, however, be expressive of our true nature, which can be troubling, can't it? Yes. So check those posts and make sure that they are reflective of the love and gentleness of Christ. Gentleness means graciousness. It means possessing a forbearing spirit, long-suffering. Uh, it means moderation. It means reasonableness. A pastor is to have this quality. First Timothy 3 lays that out. But then all Christians are supposed to have this quality. Titus chapter 3 and verse 2. James 3 says, The wisdom that is from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, 
That's how we're supposed to be as believers. We do not insist on every right or privilege that we might think that we have. The opposite would be somebody who's harsh, cruel, crooked, dishonest, unfair. And why do we do this? Well, not only because it can uh, attack our anxiety, but also because the Bible says the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. James puts it this way. The Lord is at the door, in effect, knocking. His coming is drawing nigh. Some of us believe it's drawing very nigh. Jesus is soon returning. Now, we don't, as Christians, we don't find this thought to be strange or unbelievable. Why? Well, because he already came once. And the historical attestation to that is unquestionable that a man named Jesus of Nazareth with all these unique properties that, you know, attributes that we see in the Gospels came into this earth and left with hundreds of eyewitnesses to support these statements and the witness of other history as well, secular history. The Lord's imminent arrival means that we ought to, well, we ought to rejoice for sure, but we ought to have our gentleness be made known to all people. Our manner of life is not to be harsh and self-serving and all of that. We could take his, his coming as a threat, or I think we should take it more like this. If we're rightly aligned with the Lord and his attitude, not as a threat, but as an encouragement that he's coming. We don't want to be ashamed before him at his coming and so on. That's 1 John 2.28. Then the third of the... Uh, prescriptions here is indeed the prayer one that we mentioned. Pray instead of being anxious. Verse 6, if you're evidencing the work of God's Spirit by being gentle and rejoicing, then you'll be a long way toward experiencing the peace of God in your inner person. But there's a more direct attack on that thing, those those things that eat away at peace, and that's given in verse 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication or petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. God can handle every problem that you have and help you to handle anything. The things, you know, the things that trouble you don't trouble God. I fear, however, this, may, this reversal of that statement may be true. The things that don't trouble us, the things that we do, the things that we try to hide, the things that we think, the things that don't trouble us, those do trouble God. You understand the difference? but we're worried about this or that thing tomorrow. Look, we can't, even, we can't do anything about tomorrow. We can't do anything about 1 o'clock. It's 12 o'clock, okay? It's coming, whether we like it or not. And so the Lord taught us to live that one day at a time mentality to give those cares over to the Lord, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and he would add all those things to us. What we cannot do, he can do. What we do not know, he knows. What you're unsure how to handle, he knows how to handle. So ask God about these things. Don't lose sleep over them. God doesn't go to sleep anyway. He can take care of it while you sleep. By doing so, you're not throwing your cares into the darkness, hoping for a reply, hoping against hope. You're instead demonstrating your humility before God, placing your cares with someone who can do something about them instead of yourself, but many of us are self-sufficient. You know, we pull up our, ourselves by our own bootstraps and we think we can handle all these problems that come into our lives. For what reason are you anxious? 
Is it that you do not understand that God is in control of all things? Perhaps you don't really trust the Lord. Or do you believe that you're the one who controls everything in your life? And since sometimes that doesn't work, it breeds stress. We're commanded here to not be anxious. Did you hear that? This is not an option. Most people would say, Pastor, that's impossible. You can't tell me how to feel. Well, God can, and he just did. Be anxious for nothing. One of the areas or one of the ways of dealing with anxiety is to obey what this says. Be obedient to the word of God. It's not the word of man. This is the word of God. If you're in that group of people who say, well, that's impossible. You can't tell me to do that. Just be aware of your arrogance. You're putting yourself above the word of God. The Christian can learn to control his or her emotions and not to be anxious. Instead, he turns his anxious thoughts into prayers and supplications. By so doing, we ask God to manage the circumstances at hand. We ask him to help us cope well with them. And when we pray, we need to exhibit a true heart of thanksgiving toward God, not merely complaining or grumbling to him. One of the things you can do is read the Psalms because they, they will have that, God, here's my problem. It's a lament. It's a it's a, it's a complaint almost, but then at the end of many of the psalms, you come, come to the point where the psalmist understands the will of God and, and the graciousness of God and so on. We are warned away in the Bible from being like pagans. What's the problem with pagans? Not, that, not just that they worship idols, but in Romans 1, it says, neither were they thankful. Thankfulness, or let me say this, thanklessness is one of the cardinal sins of the scriptures. Now, somebody might object, you know, Christianity, that's for weaklings, people who believe they have an imaginary friend who can help them. You know, they say, no thanks, I'll manage my own problems. That thought at least has this going for it. It has a measure of consistency with the atheistic religious worldview. And I notice I said atheistic religious worldview because atheism is a religion. What is a, what is a religious view? It's a view held uh, with faith. Well, atheists hold their view with faith. Some evidence, they think. But we have the same in Christianity. But this idea of I'll handle it myself fails both in its end point and its underlying support. As to the end point, there's a big problem at the end of your life that you cannot manage. You cannot manage. Hebrews 9.27, which says it's appointed unto men once to die, And then the judgment. Acts 17, 31 says, God has appointed a day in which he will judge all men in righteousness by that man whom he's appointed, Jesus Christ, obviously. And he's given assurance of this by raising him from the dead. You will face Christ in the future judgment. He is the judge of the earth. So the the philosophy that I'll manage my own problems, I don't need God, fails in the end point of life. But in addition, the support or or foundation of the atheistic worldview falls apart if you consider that nothing cannot make anything, nor can a dead thing make a living thing. Random chance does not account for the laws of nature or logic or morality. The weakling argument only works because you are looking through a limited window that fails to see the supports underneath your own view and the end point towards which you are going. 
And so I challenge you if you have that. You know, atheism argues from its no-God starting point back around to its no-God ending point. Okay? It's as circular as, as you claim Christianity is if you're an atheist. The same exact thing. It suffers worse problems, in fact, because it cannot account for the laws of nature or logic or morality and these sorts of things. The result of all of this is God's peace in the inner person. The peace of God has often been explained this way, that it's, that it's different than the peace with God. The latter, peace with God, comes from salvation and is objective. Standing before the Lord, you have peace before him. Romans 5, 1 says, therefore, having been justified by faith. Notice that it gives, the, gives you the, the action of God justified, the means by which that happens by faith. Once you have that, then you have peace with God. We should notice that if you do not have peace with God, you cannot have the peace of God. The peace of God is the peace that comes from him to his children. It is a calm, confident assurance in Christ as over against the billows of cares that blow into this life. We just have a little bit more to go. Hang in there. This peace, which is experienced by people in the hardest of circumstances, is, as the text says, uh, inexplicable in the final analysis. Notice what it says in verse 7. The peace of God, which does what? Surpasses all understanding. Have you seen somebody with a terminal disease, a Christian person who is at complete calm and trust in the Lord? How do they do that? It seems inexplicable. It surpasses human understanding for that to occur. It is of supernatural origin. It outstrips the capacity of the mind to understand how God works such peace in us. We might be dying of cancer or, or some other terrible thing, and yet we have a calmness that is inexplicable in mere human terms. My friends, this is different than resignation. You know that idea that people say, well, it is what it is. It is what it will be. They're really resigning themselves to the God of fate. We don't believe in the God of fate. We believe in a personal God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father and the Spirit. Peace is a subjective feeling that can be present despite pain, grief, or loss as it comes from God. God's peace, by the way, also, it says here, doesn't only surpass understanding, but it is a sentinel. It is a garrison. It is a guard against falling victim to anxiety and falling into sin and complaint and ingratitude toward God. It, it guards the mind against becoming angry with God. Have you ever felt that before? Why, God? Why is this bad thing happening to me? And you have anxious thoughts about that. The peace of God protects us from going places. You know what I mean by letting our mind go to places where it shouldn't, where those places are dangerous for us. This peace of God guards us against that. The Philippian church needed a constant reminder to be glad in the Lord. And I believe we need that same reminder today. Thus, I preached this message for us. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Watch your conduct, that it's gentle, moderate, peaceable, you know, reasonable toward all people, if you have that, then you can add to that 
Be anxious for nothing, but by prayer and supplication, let those requests be made known to God, and you will have great success in living in a world full of causes of anxiety. You don't want to elevate other things above God and make them your constant thought, the objects of your anxiety. If you set your mind on things above, if you fill your mind with the things of God, what happens? You push anxieties out to the border of your mind and hopefully right out altogether. By living with a gentle spirit, a rejoicing inner person, a thankful heart, and a praying disposition, we can overcome anxious thoughts with great success. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you that you have given us this instruction, which is so practical, so relevant. And thank you, Lord, that knowing the human condition, you've laid out these truths for us that we can put them into practice in our lives. Thank you for the gospel of Christ, which gives us good hope, helps us to deal with the endpoint problem. For the existence of God and all that you've done in creation and uh, giving us a clear evidence of that from you, uh, from the beginning of the creation, you are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, and this gives us the underlying support. When you've sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for our sins, this gives us a great confidence knowing that you have provided for our sinfulness and then we can go on and live in him in this uh, calm and assured way. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.